I think most of you would have probably heard the quote that goes something like, in this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. That saying's been around for a fair while now, but I think it still holds a lot of truth. There's so much that's constantly changing when we look at technology and the way that we relate to one another, yet we still have to pay our taxes and we really can't avoid the fact that we are all going to die one day. And even though we know both of those things, I think sometimes we can fall into the trap of spending a lot more time thinking about and preparing for just one of those certainties, while somewhat ignoring the other. Over the last month or so, I'm guessing you would have found it pretty hard to miss all of the advertising and sales for end of financial year. It seems to get bigger and bigger every year. I can definitely see why they put it in the middle of the year instead of at Christmas time. Maybe you've been collecting receipts in a shoebox, keeping a logbook in the car to claim kilometres, or even visiting your accountant to do some pre-planning in order to minimise the tax that you have to pay. And that's not a bad thing. I'm sure the accountants in the room would agree that that's a good thing. We should plan ahead and be careful with our money. But how often do we, how often have you set aside time to think about what will happen to you when you die? Because we all know that it's going to happen. Can you prepare for it? This morning as we open the Bible together, we come face to face with three men that are all about to die. Three men that are all approaching death in a different way. And my hope and prayer is that you will give some serious thought as to whether you are prepared or not. We're in Luke chapter 23, and uh, as we've seen, the reading is printed on the inside of the bulletin for you. But first, to give us some context, uh, the chapter is describing the events 2,000 years ago leading up to the death of Jesus Christ. It starts off with Jesus appearing before Pilate, the Roman governor, and then Herod, accused of undermining the nation, opposing the payment of taxes, that first certainty that we thought about, and claiming to be the Christ, a king. They both found him innocent, so Pilate was just going to punish Jesus and release him. End of story. The crowds, however, had other ideas, and they demanded that Barabbas, who had previously been thrown into prison for a violent uprising and murder, be released, and Jesus take his place on death row. Pilate gives in to the pressure, and the soldiers lead Jesus away, and in verse 32, we pick it up. Two other men... Both criminals were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Crucifixion in the ancient world was intended to take as long as possible. No vital organs were damaged, so it could take two or three days to die often from shock or suffocation, as muscles used for breathing grew weak. In this brutal time that it took to die, we see the reaction of the crowds 
and the soldiers who were gathered there, as well as the criminals on either side of Jesus. The crowds are the first ones to speak in verse 35. And if you're following along on the talk outline, we're up to point one. Verse 35. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the Chosen One. Well, they certainly get one thing right, that Jesus saved others. Right from when Jesus starts his ministry back in Luke chapter 4, he is healing people and saving people. He drives out evil spirits. He heals fevers and leprosy. Jesus tells a paralyzed man to walk, and he does. In chapter 7, Jesus turns up at a funeral and touches the coffin, tells the dead man to get up, and the man sits up and begins to talk. He heals a sick woman and raises a dead girl to life, plus many other miracles, and they're just the ones that Luke has recorded. In Jesus' ministry on earth, he left no doubt about his power and authority. Nothing is too hard for him. No evil spirit too strong. Even death is no obstacle for his saving power. But here he is at his death, and the crowds are sneering at him, doubting the extent of his power. They seem to think that Jesus has reached his limit. After all, his hands and feet are nailed to a splintery Roman cross, and there is seemingly nothing he can do about it. All of those miracles and claims, and it's come to this? The crowds just see it as weak and pathetic. With such sarcasm, they say, let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the Chosen One. Sadly, the soldiers have much the same reaction. In verse 36 we read, The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. And then joining in with the crowds who had gathered and the soldiers who were mocking him, we hear from the first of the criminals who hung there beside Jesus, echoing the same sentiments. Verse 39, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. Back in Luke chapter 19, Jesus said about himself, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Essentially, the crowds, the soldiers, and this first criminal are all saying to Jesus, We don't trust you to save us. That same thought can be expressed in our own lives in many ways. It might be insulting or mocking Jesus. It might be simply ignoring Jesus. It might look like coming to church on Sunday, but during the week, Jesus has nothing to do with your life. There are lots of ways that we might respond like the first criminal. Are you rejecting Jesus, not trusting him to save you, 
maybe without even realising what you're doing. At any rate, here in these verses, Jesus was being insulted and mocked, ridiculed, and it didn't look at all like the all-conquering, battle-winning, fearless leader and saviour that the people were expecting. Which makes the reaction of the second criminal all the more surprising. In point two, we see that somehow he saw that there was more to this than meets the eye. Somehow he saw that something truly significant was taking place. Somehow he recognised that Jesus was actually who he said he was. And so this criminal asks him, as they hang there, side by side on the cross, can I come? Let's take a look, verse 40. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. When the crowds and the soldiers and the first criminal didn't trust in Jesus to save them, this second criminal does. In a remarkable exchange that should give so much hope to anyone willing to listen, we see first a rebuke, then a reality, and finally a request. In verse 40, the second criminal rebukes the first by pointing out that they are all in the same situation. They have all been condemned by Rome to death on a cross. All three are under the same sentence. And then in the next verse comes the reality. He says, We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. Crucifixion was generally reserved for the worst of crimes, and used as a deterrent in order to prevent others from doing the same thing. I'm not sure what these two criminals were sentenced for, but this criminal was satisfied that the punishment fit the crime. He could see the justice in his death penalty. I wonder what you feel your deeds deserve. Maybe you feel that you are actually pretty good. You haven't done too many terrible things, certainly much better than a lot of people that you know. Or maybe you have a heavy heart and you know that you've done many terrible things, things that have hurt other people, whether you've been caught or not. Maybe you feel like you aren't worthy of being saved. Neither of those views could be further from the truth. The fact is, We aren't good. Frankly, we're all in the same boat. We have all turned our back on God and done things our own way. Paul's letter to the Romans tells us that. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've literally fallen short of the mark. No matter how good you think you are, it is so short of God's standards. We haven't got a hope of saving ourselves. 
And on the other hand, there is no one too bad to be saved. Not this criminal, and certainly not you, no matter what you've done. And the reason that any of us can be saved at all is because Jesus lived a perfect life. That's what the second criminal recognised. He said, For we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Which brings us to the request. Generally, when you request something, you have some level of confidence that the person you are asking has the ability to fulfil your request. You ask a mechanic to service your car because you trust they have the skills and the experience to do that. You take your shoebox of receipts to the accountant because they're good at what they do and can file your tax return with all the right information much better than you can. The second criminal asks Jesus to remember me when you come into your kingdom because he trusts that Jesus is the Christ, God's chosen king, the saviour that the whole history of God's people has been pointing to all along. And he knows that Jesus has a kingdom and is in charge of that kingdom. And he controls who comes into that kingdom. And so even though he has lived a life of rejecting God and rejecting Jesus, he now repents and asks to be saved. When Jesus goes into his kingdom, this guy wants to be there. He says, can I come? Finally, Jesus speaks. We're up to point three. And verse 43, Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. Wow, how good are those words. Imagine Jesus saying those words to you, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus is promising this second criminal eternal life, paradise. I reckon that there are two things that need to be true of Jesus in order for him to say those amazing words. First, he needs to be willing. And second, he needs to be able. Firstly, we can see that Jesus is willing simply because He is on the cross. At any stage during this whole process, Jesus could have abandoned ship. We saw the miracles that he performed all throughout Luke. It's not a case of the religious leaders somehow outsmarting Jesus and being able to control his amazing power. It's that Jesus was willing to go through with God's plan for rescuing his people. He is proving his willingness by dying on a cross. And secondly, he is able. And we just need to read on to see that. He didn't stay dead. He conquered death. On the third day, he rose out of the grave and appeared to many witnesses. And after a time, he was taken up 
into heaven to take his rightful place on the throne. So what does that mean for us? Well, you can do one of two things. You can respond to the good news of Jesus by brushing it off. Or you can respond to the good news about Jesus by believing. We are just like the two criminals that hung there beside Jesus nearly 2,000 years ago. There are only two options. We all deserve what is coming for us without Jesus, death and punishment for rejecting our maker. By nature, we are all like the first criminal, turning our backs on the God who created us to love and worship him. Really simply put, we all deserve to end up in hell. But there is a way, a perfect way, that satisfied God's justice. The person of Jesus who took the punishment that we deserved on the cross. So that through believing in him, we can have eternal life. Jesus died so that we can live forever with him. It's not complicated. And while you are alive, it's never too late. The second criminal realised that Jesus was king and simply said, Can I come? He didn't get what he deserved. Instead, he got something far better. If you haven't already, will you say to Jesus, Can I come? Will you ask Jesus to forgive you and then seek to live with him as the rightful king over your life from that day until you breathe your last with the certain hope of paradise on the other side of death? Will you do it before it's too late? Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that your plan all along was to save your people. Through the death of your son on the cross, a death that satisfied your justice by taking the punishment that we deserved for rejecting you. Thank you that it is simple. There's nothing fancy about it. All we have to do is believe in Jesus, believe in his death and resurrection, and trust that that is what saves us and makes us right with you. Father, help all of us, me included, to take Jesus seriously. Help us to put our trust in him so that, like the second criminal, we can be welcomed into eternal life as part of your family. Amen.